Welcome back to Speculative Futures. My name is Michael Phillips Moskowitz, your host, and this episode is dedicated to exploring the third of three pillars. Supporting what we hope will be a big, bold, or simply brighter future for Israel, the multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-multi-state in the Middle East. And today's episode concerns itself with what really makes this place so unique, even magnetic, and that is spirituality. And that is what we'll address and explore today. This notion of Israel as arable soil for spiritual innovation or spiritual enterprise. The aim of this episode is to take just one of the major perceived obstacles or impediments to peace, that being religion, and prove or at least lightly illustrate how it might be leveraged as an asset, even an advantage and a source of national strength, or you might even call it a national resource that's uniquely attuned to meet the needs of the world or positioned to meet some of the world's current emotional and psychological shortcomings and challenges. Now, it's worth remembering, this is a speculation. It's not a prediction, but it could, and we hope will, present a way out of the current political quagmire. In our view, and this is while we stare or squint into the sun, trying to see a different sort of tomorrow, we do see the spiritual energy and spiritual potential of this place as something powerful, potentially transformative, forward-moving, and forward-pointing. It's the unique vibrational energy, religious or non-religious, that could be harnessed to do good and to overcome the divisions of the past. Well, this is the conceit of this episode, as well as of this podcast in general. So. Let's try to rethink the way people conceive of or perceive of Israel by using what is there and turning it into a source of good, rarefied air, or vibration nation. Israel just isn't like any other place on the planet. It isn't. Some have suggested that every stone and pebble seems to tremble underfoot, vibrating to the frequency of the patriarchs and matriarchs. This is, after all, the land of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, King David and Bathsheba. And Jerusalem, at least for readers of the many holy scriptures, was the site of the binding of Isaac. It's the location of the Kotel, or the Western Wall, formerly known as the Wailing Wall, which represents the last vestige of the first and second temples, the site of the Holy of Holies. In case you haven't seen the original Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, this was the holding place of the Ark of the Covenant containing within it the remains of the Ten Commandments, or what we believe to be the remains of the first ten, which Moses shattered in frustration at Mount Sinai before making a second set. Unless, of course, you've seen History of the World Part Three, where Mel Brooks playing Moses has 15 commandments, five of which he accidentally drops and leaves us with the immemorial ten. Blocks away from the Kotel, Visitors and pilgrims can find the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, identified by Christians as the site of the crucifixion and the tomb of Jesus himself. On the ground floor of the site sits the Chapel of Adam, as in the Adam of Edenic infamy. Fig leaf, apple, Eve, that Adam. Tradition maintains that Jesus was crucified atop the very place where Adam's skull was buried. Some even hold that the blood of Christ ran down the cross, through the rocks, to fill Adam's skull. Now, that's more Temple of Doom than Passion of the Christ, but 
believe what you will. By far the largest and most visible feature of the old city is the Haram al-Sharif, or what Jews call the Temple Mount. For Muslims, it's known as the Noble Sanctuary. It's a 145,000 square meter complex encompassing the Dome of the Rock, Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome al-Silsila, the Bab al-Rahma, as well as 90 other structures. Haram al-Sharif is the location of Muhammad's ascent to heaven, still revered as the third holiest site in all of Islam. And before Muslims directed their five daily prayers toward the Kaaba, the beautiful black cube in the center of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, the direction faced during Islamic prayer was Al-Aqsa. All roads lead to and through Jerusalem. But faith and religiosity in Israel are not restricted to the three major monotheistic orders. Israel is also the home and headquarters of the Baha'i faith. And if you look up into the hills of Haifa, you'll see their visually arresting, stunning headquarters. And directly to the east of Haifa, primarily around the Kinneret and Golan Heights, are large Druze communities, a critically important piece of the country's religious and cultural mosaic. Israel, it seems, is what you might call arable soil for spiritual endeavor. The power of place matters. Now, just because Israel gave birth to Judaism and to Christianity and hosts some of the holiest sites in Islam doesn't mean that it's inevitably or inexorably bound to birth the world's next or newest major religion. What it does mean is that the feeling of the place, its historical significance, and the character of its many inhabitants who are born into the humid, mystical fold gives it permission, psychic and spiritual permission, to think and act and experiment in areas and in ways that address the world's kaleidoscopic spiritual thirst and aspirations. The thing is, some places literally do special things. And in Israel, the land imparts a nearly palpable spiritual energy. It radiates. Some people joke that it's nearly measurable with a Geiger counter. If only there were such a thing. Can you imagine a hacky, cyberpunk, pseudoscientific tool or wackadoodle device hastily assembled by Egon and Ray and Ghostbusters. But there isn't such a thing. We only have our powers of perception, and people really perceive the power of spirituality in this place. Now, we're not going to address the history of spirituality hermeneutically. The point is, spirituality is a central piece or pillar of the human experience everywhere, of the human condition, of life. And the modern era has created more impediments to spiritual identity and to spiritual practice than arguably any other recorded era. For more on the subject, we spoke with Rabbi Bradley Hirschfield, the director of Klal. It's not that Israel is unique and I go, wow. It's that I realize Israel as unique and then I go, wow. There's no way to prove, for example, the Talmudic teaching that every six feet one walks in the land of Israel is the fulfillment of a mitzvah, of a religious obligation. It's because you buy into the specialness of the land and the system of religious obligations that every six feet you go, wow. So I think we have to start with the dual awareness of a heaping dose of humility about the claims that we make and then real honesty about the passion we feel. It's not that my understanding that it's not objectively so makes it less real to me. In fact, I don't think we should ever limit ourselves 
to the metric of what is objectively and measurably correct. If human beings limited themselves to that which is measurably and objectively correct, we wouldn't get anything done. And I don't just mean in the domain of religion. You don't put people on the moon. You don't cure cancer. You don't, which by the way, for me, are spiritual acts. You don't get any of that done unless you fundamentally say, here's the way the world is observably and measurably true. I don't care. I believe there's more to it. I believe that there's more that's possible. Does it make any sense? No. It doesn't make any sense in the world of what is. But you're asking about the world as it could be. And so I don't need to strengthen my claims by saying, well, here's what I can demonstrate to you on a blackboard. Any more than if you told me you could demonstrate to me what it means to fall in love on a blackboard. Well, if you really want to understand what makes this place, these people, and the spiritual ecology of Israel or the Levant, or even the broader Middle East so unique, consider the recollections and characterizations of the region by a European, first published by T.E. Lawrence, in the first chapter of The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. You might be more familiar with him as Lawrence of Arabia. Writing in 1922, he said the following, the creed of the desert seemed inexpressible in words and indeed in thought. It was easily felt as an influence and those who went into the desert long enough to forget its open spaces and its emptiness were inevitably thrust upon God as the only refuge and rhythm of being each individual nomad had his revealed religion, not oral or traditional or expressed, but instinctive in himself. And so we got all the Semitic creeds with, in character and essence, a stress on the emptiness of the world and the fullness of God. And according to the power and opportunity of the believer was the expression of them. Even for a noted agnostic like Lawrence, you couldn't help but discover and feel the presence of God in the absence of all of man's artifice. And that remains true to this day. So what does spirituality look like from a Jewish perspective in Israel? For more on this, we turned again to Rabbi Brad Hirschfield. So typically, when they talk about religion, they're talking about some external source of authority that is imposed upon them. And they mean the fact that when, if I did the things my religion taught me as a kid growing up, I get very little short-term psychological ROI, right? That the experience of religion is some external authority, a synagogue, a church, a mosque, a temple, a god, the gods, my parents, it doesn't matter. You have to do this. And on top of that, when I do it, if I do it, I'm like, what the hell? I don't feel anything. And I expect to feel something. People then call spiritual, I am the source of the authority. It comes from within me. And when I do it, I feel something. That, I think, is the distinction. But it's more important, I think, to think about why that distinction is being made. And as I said, to appreciate that the need to make the distinction speaks to a larger issue of religion's perceived value in people's lives. Words, no one made the distinction between spiritual and religious until people started to say, what I know to be religion doesn't work for me. 
So I need a new category. I need a new word. But the issue isn't the difference between religion and spirituality. The issue is most of what I, the person making the distinction, feels is that thing they call religion doesn't work. You know, the parallel is when half the people who are eager to tell me that they don't believe in God, and I ask them to tell me about the God in whom they don't believe, my response is, it's funny. I don't believe in that God either. But I do believe in God. But Judaism has no monopoly on spirituality in the Holy Land. It's critically important to understand the same subject through a Christian lens and through a Muslim lens as well. For the former, we spoke with Professor Mark Heim of the Yale Divinity School. The wavelength of appeal to Christians is profound, but it's of a different sort. Now, as far as I can tell, there have always been visionary Christians for whom Jerusalem was kind of the, the centerpiece. There have always been people who went to Jerusalem and went, wanted to live there as part of what they saw as the future, as the, the spiritual future of the world from their perspective. And again, for more on this critical subject and for a perspective from an Islamic scholar, we had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Amir Hussein, Chair and Professor of Theological Studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Part of the appeal for Muslims, this goes back to that mystical tradition, you know, the Prophet Muhammad has that night journey, you know, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Isra, the 17th chapter of the Quran talks about, in very elliptical terms, you know, uh, about God who brings his servant by night from uh, the holy mosque to the farthest mosque and, and Aqsa in Arabic is the farthest. And so, you know, the site on the Temple Mount of the Aqsa Mosque for Muslims, it's, yeah, this is where Muhammad goes from Mecca to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, he ascends up to heaven and, and pious Muslims in the Dome of the Rock, which is inside the Aqsa Mosque, will point out the, what is believed to be the footprint of the prophet, that this is literally where he ascends up to heaven. And you see interesting kinds of things. There are traditions that talk about, you know, Jerusalem as being, we use this technical term, Axis Mundi, literally like the axis of the world, you know, is that Jerusalem? For many Muslims, that's the, that's Mecca and it's the Kaaba. And it's literally like the actions of the, the, the pilgrims circling the Kaaba. That's what keeps the earth revolving. So you have mystical traditions in Islam that, that, that seem very similar to mystical traditions in the, in the Jewish world. But back to your question about the, the importance here, for Muslims, that, that's part of it, that this is where the prophet comes. This is where other prophets are. This place of the prophets becomes so uh, uh, powerful here that Israel is this land where these prophets uh, lived. Well, it's important to remember, Jews, Christians, and Muslims do make up the vast majority of believers in the Holy Land. But there are other important faiths and followers in this uniquely mystical place. And this concentration of practices, plural, is what makes it so powerful. The missing link. A growing divide, a wide rift really, emerged between religion and spirituality in the 21st century. Humans still want and need to feel the resplendent glow and nurturing warmth of connection. We all do. Of spiritual connection in particular. Each of us, every day, try desperately to feed and satisfy this very need. The difference, at least today, is that organized faith, or formal religious practice, which once held a near monopoly on and over spirituality, witnessed its control significantly diminish in the last 30 years. It certainly started long before the 21st century, no doubt, 
but the speed of decline has proven precipitous in the last 30. In our conversations with multiple scholars, the idea emerged that spirituality doesn't need to only be achieved by bowing or kneeling or prostrating in a house of worship. Even that idea faces a formidable challenge. It might even face a challenger. Who might that be, or what is it? I think it's the idea that one can be spiritual, but not religious. In fact, as of 2018, more than 25% of Americans identified themselves as spiritual, but not religious. This is not a fringe movement. Young people disproportionately make up those who are, again, spiritual, but not religious. And one could surmise that short of another great awakening in the States and elsewhere, that the diminishing interest in organized religion is likely to maintain a steady decline. Once again, Professor Mark Heim of the Yale Divinity School. The simplistic way would be to say, oh, in terms of the ultimate questions that human beings face, these spiritualities are too small or limited. But I think it's also true we can go horizontally in, in your current experience, and the same thing becomes true because the spiritualities generally have not produced, you know, social theory or produced um, psychologies of their own and so forth. They're again kind of kind of I don't want to use the parasit the word parasitic. They're symbiotic with the things that have been produced out of other sort of more large scale projects. Once again, Dr. Amir Hussein. So so I think there are two things there, you know, around these different practices that people do, you know, at exercise, yoga, those kinds of things, you know, why is that not complete? Because I don't think those are meant to be complete ways of life. Now, my colleague here at LMU would argue with you, we have at my university, the only uh, master's program in yoga studies. And so Chris Chappell, who founded that program, you know, very serious people study, you know, three years of Sanskrit, they're reading, you know, the yoga sutras in the original, they're doing these kinds of things. So absolutely, I, I, you can say that for certain folks, yoga is a way of life. For the vast majority of Americans who use it, yoga is a way of, you know, into, tuning up your body, tuning your mind, putting your mind in, in tune with your body. I think part of that reason that those things have an appeal is that within our religious traditions, we've lost them. The rise of spirituality at the expense of organized religion seems like a natural progression, particularly given other changes in the world. Some consider spirituality the gig economy approach to religion. It's flexible, move at your own pace and speed, do it when you want. There's no binding contract, no cancellation fee or consequence, and certainly no stern or unyielding manager. Most people relish the idea that there isn't a nun or a priest, rabbi or imam, or even a menacing deity, making you feel bad if you skip a day. But maybe a more potent explanation for religion's own existential challenge of late is that it struggles to square its mission, its vision and approach, with a world defined increasingly by instant gratification. All things on demand. It's an interesting question who we are to demand anything anyway. Many have remarked that we've elevated the common person, myself included, to imperial status. And we're all monsters. Now, I don't want to inveigh against an entire generation of entitled, insatiable, even irrational emperors. I simply worry about myself in this case. Do we expect too much? Well, elsewhere, if one tries to be spiritual through meditation or exercise, which is very common, the effects, the positive dividends, can be felt immediately, viscerally. Contrast that with prayer an undertaking which for many involves pleading with, 
prostrating herself before or prevailing upon a deity to make something happen. Gimme, 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 please, God, gimme. But there's no instant gratification or payoff with most religion. There's no button. There's no reward instantaneously delivered by fiber optic cable or through Kanye's ultralight beams, which, by the way, as a fellow bipolar sufferer, it sounds like he needs to have his medication adjusted. If you're seeing a thousand ultralight beams, you're having seizures. The point is, at the moment, religion appears to be losing out, even though there is widespread desire for spiritual connection, and people are turning increasingly to new places, new people, new techniques, new methods, new practitioners. But one of the reasons that this subject and spirituality in general matters so much, especially now, is because of how people are feeling. We're struggling. I'm struggling. And mental health is a major challenge everywhere on the planet, with issues of anxiety and depression accelerated significantly by COVID-19. And issues with mood aren't solved simply with religion or spiritual practice, but they certainly are a critical piece of the puzzle. Spirituality and mental health operate in a sort of gravitational relationship. And the emotional challenges that people everywhere face on a daily basis do have spiritual dimensions. This is precisely why it matters. When times are tough, and we know this to be true, people turn back to religion and to spirituality for succor and support, or at least for reassurance. In polling, around 20% of Americans interviewed between March 28th and April 1st of last year said that their faith or spirituality had gotten better as a result of the crisis, while only 3% reported that it somehow got worse. It was a net 16 percentage point gain, that according to Gallup. Remember, this was still in the earliest days of the pandemic, long before the riots, long before multiple months of quarantine. And think about yourself. Have you wondered or worried about the future? Have you considered or wrestled with spirituality or thought about going to the rope store, which in my case was located conveniently next to the rickety stool store? and only been deterred from making a purchase by the fact that the store was closed, I get it. You're certainly not alone. We don't have new figures concerning spirituality as impacted by COVID in 2021. But we do know that a combination of spiritual decline or spiritual struggle coupled with social isolation erode emotional resilience and compromise longitudinal health outcomes. And these are all urgently applicable and painfully real right now. However, spirituality isn't a substitute for religion. Once again, Dr. Amir Hussein. But what would happen if all the people who love Israel, who love the Holy Land, who love Palestine, who love Jerusalem, who love Al-Quds, call it whatever you want, all said, look, for the time being, we can't engage each other, we shouldn't engage each other's way. What we have to do is engage ourselves. Do we really want to cultivate hearts and minds that want to be as expansive as any idea or person who wants to find a place. Do that for 10 years and see what happens. So admittedly, there are open questions. Is religion somehow enough? Is spirituality somehow insufficient? Is there more that we should be doing? Well, it's interesting that another theologian weighed in on almost precisely this issue in 1976. Rabbi and philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel, who wrote widely on this subject throughout his career, and said in one of his seminal works that, quote, 
in our own lives, the voice of God speaks slowly, one syllable at a time. He went on to remark that, quote, our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. But remember, Heschel and the Catholic popes, for that matter, are still talking about religion. They're not talking about spirituality stripped from it or a debased form of religion or Depeche Mode's notion of a personal Jesus disconnected from doctrine. All things considered, and we don't mean the NPR show. Israel may have a unique opportunity to become a nation that prioritizes spirituality, more than it even does already. That doesn't mean it needs to replace religion or bend or kowtow to the demands of a monstrous on-demand culture. What it does mean is that Israel can, and in our view should, widen the paths of participation. Unlike any other nation on earth, it can take advantage of its unique spiritual ecology and ensure that this coral reef can support a greater portion of the global food chain, not just people living in the state. Now, on the one hand, it's a country where spirituality seems to run through the water. The spiritual ethos of this place has been known and sought after for thousands of years. At the same time, spirituality still feels like a misunderstood or even a mismanaged national resource. The natural resource, or unprocessed fuel, is there, but it needs to be refined, put in a vehicle, and someone needs to turn on the ignition. So what to do, where to go, and how? It's possible that Israel can or could take two approaches. A, help formulate an entirely new language, style, and approach to organized religion and faith. That's one. But, at least historically, it's easier for individual leaders, more than movements, to find the right tone, timbre, timing, and temperament to truly drive change. In recent memory, the late Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs set a pretty powerful precedent, and Pope Francis seems to have plotted an impressive path of his own. But it's hard to find strong, visible or viable evidence elsewhere in the Judeo-Christian world, or in the Pan-Islamic world for that matter, at least right now. And two voices, one of them already gone, are not enough. And even they weren't often able to reach the secular masses. So that leads us to option two. Imagine if there were new platforms, smarter channels, to help unaffiliated millions yearning to find spiritual sustenance, or more meaning, a deeper connection to the divine, or more purpose in their everyday lives. Is it possible? Well, we can't do it by relying on televangelists, even though there are a few suspiciously talented on-air personalities. We think there are three general categories or paths of potential pursuit, and we'd like to furnish an example of each. Not a solution. These are just reference points or sacrificial concepts. Sacrificial, meaning they're designed to be discarded if you don't like them. So keep what you like, leave the rest behind. Path one, the temporal approach. Think of Desert X, a site-specific contemporary art exhibition held in the Coachella Valley in Southern California in and around Palm Springs. Thanks to Susan Davis, they've been able to expertly curate an event that's a draw not just for locals or even art-oriented LA elites, but really for people from all across the country. And it affirms not just the kitsch or nostalgic fragrance of Palm Springs, 
but its renewed cultural relevance. Remember, Palm Springs went from Hollywood weekend glitz and mid-century glam into the gutter of geriatric irrelevance. But now it's back, and Israel could certainly execute more global events of precisely this variety by leveraging its deep reservoirs of local and global artistic talent, its expert curatorial ranks at major institutions across the country, its own unique natural landscape, the volume of annual travelers and tourist traffic during non-COVID times, and the global craving for novel programming and Instagrammable moments. The Jerusalem Biennial, this is not, nor the Herzliya Biennial. What we're advocating for is something of an entirely different order, which Israel and Israelis can do if they choose. Path two, the institutional approach. Think of Naoshima, the art island complex in Japan's Seto Inland Sea. You have to imagine stretches of stunning blue sea, verdant green hills, sprawling art museums built into the hillside. It's a collision of unblemished natural beauty, almost sacred architecture, and truly exquisite artist practice. In some ways, it feels like you've, I don't know, left the planet without readying yourself for weightless environments or for the alarming redness of Mars. It's really that special. Even writing about this place is like trying to perform interpretive dance about economics. Writing about it isn't the proper tool. You've just got to go see it. And the meditation center? Well, that place is like sauntering around sober, somehow under the influence of LSD. Let me tell you what I mean. Maybe you can recall the scene from Terminator 2 with the shattered cyborg remelting itself, liquid metal drop by liquid metal drop into a hole. It's kind of like that. Except at Naoshima, water mysteriously wicks itself across the floor as if being directed by a ghost. So could you do something like this in Israel, in the Negev? Could you get Svi Hecker to do it? Or tap Ada Karmi Melamid? Create a Rodan crater for meditation or a downward path toward a deeper connection. Create a flexible, reprogrammable art campus that widens eyes and lifts spirits. A new architecture of revelation beholden not to form or to function, but to feeling. Now, this might sound like it contradicts some of what we've been saying about sensorial spirituality being a cul-de-sac, but when you do it in Israel, it won't function as a dead end or an outcropping or a point of attraction. It will simply be a widening of the coral reef of meaning. And by the way, if you do endeavor to do it, these two, the aforementioned architects, have the experience, the gravitas, the seniority, and the sensitivity to make it a success. But you better put them to work now before Tzvi celebrates his 90th birthday or Ada celebrates her 85th. And finally, path three, the communal approach. Think of Marfa, Texas, the artist's hub. Not that Israel doesn't already have artist colonies in Jaffa, Tzvat, Mitzbiramon, and elsewhere, but none of these places have the global profile created courtesy of artist Donald Judd. Of course, it does help that locals have reported seeing mysterious orbs known as the Marfa Lights outside of town. But Israel has plenty of phenomena of its own, which is exactly the point of this entire episode. Marfa isn't just a museum installation like Naoshima. It's a dynamic community, removed from the bustle of its next closest cities hours away. And this template, or this ideal, could be replicated in a manner reminiscent of the early kibbutzim and moshavim in Israel. To pull it off, Talk to Neri Oxman. I admit she's more of a material scientist, but she does call herself an architect. 
or Daniel Liebeskind, or even Frank Gehry. Although I allow, Frank is about as Jewish as an above-ground pool is a pool. Or as Dave Chappelle says, it's a pool. We know creating community is never easy. Jewish, Christian, and Muslim communities do not all operate or think the same way. And many people prefer to affiliate more personally or more narrowly, or to even participate more conditionally with religion or with religious identity than in prior eras. How does this manifest in a country? It's a good question. Scholars of the modern Middle East have long debated the nature, contours, conditions, and even the concept of, say, an Islamic state in the 20th or 21st centuries. What is an Islamic democracy? What's an Islamic economy? There are about 50 countries where the majority of the population is Muslim, 30 countries in which more than 90% of the inhabitants belong to Islam, and Islamic republics exist. The list includes not just Iran, but Afghanistan, Pakistan, Mauritania, and to a lesser degree, Libya, after the fall of Gaddafi. And let's not forget Islamic monarchies, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Bahrain, the Emirates, Kuwait, Morocco, and Oman. These countries have each incorporated Islamic law, wholly or in part, into their legal systems. Muslim states have variously declared Islam to be their state religion, enshrined in their constitutions. But they tend not to strictly apply Islamic law in their courts. The point is, the record is not uniform. These cultures, politics, legislative systems, and religious practices are as diverse as the region itself. The same is true of the so-called Islamic economy. Not a single country strictly follows the practices of the original caliphate, which immediately succeeded Muhammad after his death in 632. Now, these are all Muslim economies, at least by percentage of inhabitants, but are they Islamic economies? You'd be hard-pressed to make that case. In Israel, Secular life is often unfairly viewed as an alternative to, or in conflict with, religious life. It shouldn't be. And the relationship need not be adversarial. We believe that these two communities and cultures, or systems not of belief but of orientation, can be collaborative, cooperative, and reciprocally beneficial. You can be a Jewish state, a multi-ethnic state, a technocracy, as we've loosely defined it, and the Holy Land, all at once. So as a final closing thought, the principle is relatively simple. Because this land gave birth to some of the most significant spiritual developments in all of human history, there's more that can be done to leverage, protect, redirect, summon and exploit spiritual potential as a national resource. And there's more that can be done to engender or even cement the interests of the secular communities, plural, with the religious communities, plural, in a way that's entirely new and novel, and so far has been untested. Certainly a piece of that is going to have to be leveraging some of the creative resources that Israel enjoys at scale, in television, in content creation, in radio, without the risk of creating something as superficial as tele-evangelists. But if we can use a combination of purposeful infrastructure as we started to lay out or identify in this episode, and tapping people in positions of spiritual leadership or even religious leadership to collaborate with some of the audiences that are most in need of their services. There's more that they can do for the inhabitants of the region itself, of the state itself, and even export some of these products around the globe. That's the basic idea. Treat this land as arable soil or rich territory for spiritual endeavor enterprise 
and innovation. I'm sure many of you will have thoughts. We encourage you to share those thoughts with us, and we'll look forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear more from Rabbi Bradley Hirschfield, make sure to check out his podcast, Six Minutes with Brad Hirschfield, Politics and Culture Through a Spiritual Lens, available on Apple Podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank the artist, musician, idiom and spirit nonpareil, Devendra Banhart, for composing and producing an entirely original score for this series. We'd also like to thank Mainland Media in Berlin. We'd also like to thank Basia Rosenblum and Samuel Feldman for their tireless effort at fact-checking and finding original citations to support all of our claims. We'd like to thank Noam for holding me in check and calling bullshit routinely. Thank you, Noam. Georg Dietz for making this whole thing possible through the new institute. Tune in next time for the final episode of the series where we have some critical thoughts, actually, and things that didn't fit into prior episodes, so make sure to come back for episode five. This is your host, Michael Phelps Moskowitz, signing off from the still-frigid island of Berlin, where even in April, I'm reminded that in Germany, there are only two seasons, winter and not winter. Hope to see you again in not winter. Aloha and shalom.